Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, your host, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Erica Buist. Erica's a writer and journalist, mostly for The Guardian. After studying philosophy at Durham University, she went to live in Mexico for two years, where she became fluent in Spanish. She now also speaks Italian and French. Erica was blindsided by the sudden loss of her father-in-law. When the anxiety that followed, which involved a bout of agoraphobia and an intense fear that anyone she wasn't looking at was already dead, her fears were ignored or dismissed as normal by those around her. The subject switched swiftly changing. She became interested in why no one wanted to talk about death directly, and this has led to what is probably the opposite of agoraphobia, Erica's traveling the world, attending death festivals, and writing a book about it. She lives in England with her husband, puppies, and three cats. Welcome, Erica. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to have you, and your your biography actually brings up some really interesting um points, I think, about how we try to process losses and how people do or don't help us do that. So I'm sure we'll talk about all that. But I was hoping we could start with you just telling a little bit of the of the story and maybe reading the passage about when your father-in-law died. Yes, of course. Would you like me to read that right now? Sure. We could start there and then talk about it. That'd be great. Okay, great. Um. I'm snooping in a dead man's fridge. It's not an official post-mortem, but he's still upstairs in his bed and I need an answer now. It confirms the assumption I've already made. Everything he's been eating for years is stacked on the shelves like a WebMD list of how to drop dead of heart disease. White bread, hard cheese, soft cheese, cream cheese, wheels of brie, bacon, chorizo, sausages, chocolate, milk, and a few forgotten baby tomatoes wrinkled with age. I don't know why I bothered opening it. What was I expecting to find? My boyfriend and I lived with his father for two years while we studied and muddled through the worst of the job crisis, and Chris's routine never wavered for a second, except for the time I made him a cup of tea and he said, oh, it's in a different mug. I gathered he'd always been prone to Groundhog Day living, even in his early years living on a farm in Outback Australia. But after his wife died of esophageal cancer on Christmas Day 2008, he didn't so much stick to his daily routine as become fossilized in it. When his memory showed the slightest signs of wavering, he started setting alarms. The house was pierced by an infernal beeping seven or eight times a day, yet somehow he always remembered what each was for. He even had an 8 p.m. alarm to remind him to go to bed and read, and a 9.15 p.m. alarm to remind him to sleep. The 12.30 p.m. alarm meant lunch, crackers, grapes, and a pile of cheese every day. I knew he was dead an hour before Dion, my boyfriend, found him. It was all right there in his text. Bobby's at dad's and he's not answering the door or phone. Milk and paper haven't been collected and the dog is barking. He's probably just asleep or out, right? Suspicion that something's wrong, confirmation that something's wrong, denial that anything's wrong. 
It was practically a death certificate. I got the text at 8.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. Chris wouldn't be asleep. He once whispered to me conspiratorially that he'd had a lion until 6 a.m. Anytime I got up after 8 a.m., he would exclaim, half the day's gone. Papers left uncollected, he'd usually read them and assume the opinions as his own by now. Milk left on the doorstep with half the day, the day gone, unthinkable. One of us had to go and find him dead, and it had to be Dion. I don't have the key, I texted. You should check on him. Shall I meet you there? Don't worry, I'll go at lunch. He's clearly just gone out and forgotten to tell anyone. My heart thudded. I texted back. He could have had a fall. You really should check on him now. Getting on the bus now, he replied, followed by, thanks for making me go. Feeling like I'd had seven cups of coffee, I marched around the flat getting ready for work, singing loudly to drown out the cartoon anvil whistling down towards my head. I was halfway to the train station when my phone rang. You have to come, Dion said, his voice strangled. He's dead. You have to come now. My vision blurred. People crossed the road around me. Before taking another step, I emailed my boss that I couldn't come to work because of a dead body. It might have been more eloquent than that, but not much. On the train, realizations went off in my head like explosions. We're not seeing him next weekend. He won't be at our wedding. We're not going to South Africa next month. Dion has no parents left. When I finally got inside the house, it was freezing. The heating must have been off for days. Dion was in the kitchen mopping up dog mess. His, do his dad's Doberman Troy had been trapped, unfed, unwatered, unwalked. Dion put the mop down, collapsed on me and sobbed. After a moment, he pulled away and said, do you realize the text you sent me right before I got the call? I thought about it for a second and clamped my hands over my mouth. Oh, God, right before I found out Dad had died, you sent me a text that said, we're out of coffee, I want to die. Which is how the police arrived to find us in the kitchen, wet-faced and leaning on each other, surrounded by dog mess, gasping for air through peals of laughter. So that's how that happened. That's how that happened. And, and you capture it. I, I wonder if it's because you're a journalist that you are so able to put into your writing exactly what happened. I think I'd be hard-pressed to have so much detail even about events in my life that are, you know, quite profound. Uh, they're, they're less... Um, uh, there's less when I do that. I have to really work to get so many details, and and at the same time, so much you so much evoke the feeling of having a shocking experience like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe my sort of journalism came into it. It was a strange. Um, it was strange for two reasons. That the day that I wrote it, um, one was that um, because the piece goes on to explain well an awful lot of things about that day, but it also goes on, goes on to explain how he we found out a few hours before he died he left his house to us, so we 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 ended up inheriting this house where we'd found him, which we didn't want, um, and. Uh, it, you know, my mother, people get funny about that sort of thing. So my mother said, you know, don't, don't tell anyone about it. And I said, okay. And then a couple of months later, I wrote about it for The Guardian. It's like the opposite <laughs> she gave me. Um, and, yeah, it was, but it was strange. Like that day, I remember um, the way it happened. I actually, uh, I, I pitched, uh, I kind of wanted to write it at arm's length, you know, and not really go into the detail. And um, I pitched a piece. I'd, I'd like a, to do a comment on society. And my editors sort of said, we're not really interested in that. Could you just write about it as a memoir piece? And I sort of stared at my computer for about five hours, sort of 
humming and hawing and doing headstands. And then I just suddenly went to a cafe and just wrote it out almost word for word as it is today. A very strange day. Uh, and uh, it, it appears to me, obviously, your um, boyfriend at the time, husband now, had lost his mother. Were you together when that happened? No, actually, it was um, it was a strange time. We'd we actually got together at university and broke up very quickly because we were twenty. And um, <laughs> I'd been visiting from Mexico that year, so I he sort of texted me to let me know that she died. But um, I was with someone else. He was with someone else. I could I couldn't really be there for him. It was a very very strange time. Um, but you know, and I only met his mother once. Um, mm. so it was this, it was this strange thing where, you know, I, I, sh I should have been there, but you know, society doesn't really let your ex-girlfriend who you kind of want to get back together with come to the funeral. You know, there's so many ideas of propriety around death that, um, that, you know, even that was kind of affected by it when I, I should have just turned up for him. Yeah. You know, I find that really interesting in your story because, um, I don't know. I, I think this might be a peculiar experience to, um, you know, being an out lesbian very young in my life. But that kind of situation is not unusual in my world because people hold on to exes as friends very often. Mm. And they do come to funerals and uh, you know, all that kind of thing. So in my world, not as unusual as for a lot of people. And it, it does stand out what, what kind of damage that did to you to be sort of um, seen as not quite a part of things. That's a, that's yeah. a big example. And then even, uh, oh, well, you're not, he's not really your father-in-law or whatever people were saying about that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it... Um, it was, it, you know, no one was ever that um, explicit about it. It was more um, like, did you did you know him? And it was really strange. I didn't know how to say, I lived with him for two years. He was like a father to me. How do I, you know, how do you get that across? And also, I think there's this um, strange feeling of, of not feeling entitled to it. Like, like if, if I tell people how how much trouble I'm having with it. Is it going to look like I'm trying to sort of steal his thunder? You know, there seems to be this hierarchy with grief. Like, you know, I've even heard people talk about someone who came to a funeral and, and they said, you know, she was bawling her eyes out. Who did she think she was? She didn't even know him. What right did she have? And it sounds so cruel. And that was just sort of ringing in my head as well as that thing that you have, especially I think, I think especially women have this, um, this feeling of like, you know, just, just, I mean, just as much as men, you know, this feeling of button up, you gotta, you got to be strong, you got to be there for him. He's the one that suffered a loss. He was the one who found the body, which was, um, which was more traumatic than it needed to be, given that his father had been dead for eight days by the time we found him. So, you know, because and, he... And I, yes. You know. And I recall that um, ultimately you didn't, that it was recommended to you to not I'm not sure whether to think that helped or hindered what what happened next yeah um, it was a while before I even considered that it seemed so obvious you know his first thing was don't go upstairs do, do not even think about going upstairs because he didn't want me to see and be traumatized and but strangely because they had to um <laughs> I shouldn't laugh they had to break the door down 
because it slammed while the undertakers were in there with the body. <laughs> they just they had to break them out. It's just so it was so morbidly like hilarious and awful. But obviously that the the, the smell filled the air, and so mm. it was. I still had that that experience of it. And of course, Dion told me exactly what he saw in a moment of trauma. But in my um in my sort of research about how other cultures deal with death um i found out that this uh horror of a of a corpse is it's not instinctive it's very much cultural so and um interestingly i have spent the the time since it happened thinking i've seen him on the street or coming out of a shop or or just getting on the train you know that sort of double take thing and mm-hmm. i asked him recently did you have that experience and he looked at me like i was crazy and said god no so it, it, you're right in many ways it probably was not helpful that i cowered in the kitchen well especially you know i i had a wake for my wife when she died so mm-hmm. she was uh, her body stayed in the house for i think it was about 36 hours mhm and, of course, that was a big community event, and that helped me, mm. um, ha- having everyone come and be with me and sing and, you know, drum and sit together, all that. It helped. But mm. also, there was not, um, there was something very peaceful about her, the, the, the uh, definite fact that she was no longer in that body. Mm. It was right. so obvious and clear. Mm. Uh, I do think that helped me, you know. And and so then I'm thinking, you have this these traumatic images. I'm sure you have images in your head. We mm-hmm. we have good imaginations as human beings, and yeah. not the reality of that part. <laughs> yeah. So I can I can imagine that was especially hard in in an unusual way. Yes, and it's just, it would be it would be strange for me to sort of say I really wish I'd gone in and had a look because it's um it's not I mean no one no one even knows no one can even imagine even my m- medical family can't imagine um, what a body looks like after eight days but you know they're dead it's um you know no deep- no doubt about it yeah so and someone said like did you know right away that he was dead and I just. I think I burst out laughing and then I stopped laughing because I realized no one got the joke. And I went, yes, yes, he knew, he knew right away. We, you know, and ironically, you still need a doctor to come and pronounce them dead. Um, Mm. And that date goes on their birth certificate, even though um, I know it was eight days before. And it was all because, uh, you know, I came back with, I think, probably more accurate results than the coroner about his time of death because I knew his daily routine. And so when I yes. looked at his calendar and when I looked in his emails, I could see exactly when he died. Um, and, yeah, so it's it's a strange thing to conduct an amateur time of death investigation by yourself. But because he was so habitual that, I mean, all you had to look at is the date of the newspaper he didn't pick up. Yeah, it was all there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Pretty, pretty clear, huh? Yeah. The other thing that I hear in that is that you were deeply involved before either of you ever were at the house. Like you might have been the first person to register, this is really bad. You know, whatever it is, because your uh, boyfriend slash husband, his brother, they just didn't want to take that in right away. So... 
yeah. that means you were deeply involved and you're the one that said, no, you need to go. Yeah. <laughs> so then the idea that people would treat you like you were uninvolved or somehow distant, it's a mismatch, isn't it? I hadn't there's, even thought of that, to be honest. There's such, <laughs> a, there's such a disconnect between what you experienced and what people were saying to you. And that can yeah. certainly heighten things. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think part of it as well is because I, I don't really, um, I'm not very good at denial. And so, um, you know, there are some things I know, which is um, something I know is that if um, if the milk and paper are left on the doorstep and he's not answering the, the door or phone and the dog's barking, he's dead in there. And if you receive an email and the subject line is a person's name, that person is dead. These are things I know. I just, I don't know why, but I don't go into that period of denial at all. Never have. And I actually think that was something that contributed to my, um, to my, anxiety afterwards um i think every single day we all live um in a sort in a form of you know functional denial about the fact that we're all going to die you know you can't early man could not have survived if they had been thinking all the time that they were going to die those are not the conditions to go out and hunt you know so um i think it was actually partly that and partly just the fact that I, I can't I, I I have trouble with with denial and so later when I was sitting at home I was thinking these things about you know anyone I'm not looking at is dead <laughs> you know um, uh-huh. that was, well I, I want to um, we're about to, ready for our break but I want to leave you with this and come back to it after the break that in it might be that that you would have been okay with that had you been supported in it better yes um, so I really want to talk about that when we get back because that's what stands out to me so much. Mm-hmm. So during the break, listeners, you can go find me at my website and social media and the Good Grief page at Voice America to do all those social media things, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And to find Erica Wist, go to thisisnotajourney.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Erica Buist, who's writing a book about confronting death after the death of her father-in-law, and now writing a book about what she's calling death devils, which is festivals of, of death around the world. And before the break, Erica, we were talking about how your anxiety, you know, you said you're low on the, the denial quotient. Uh, me too. I don't seem to really have that gear anymore. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's usually great. And occasionally it's like, gosh, I want some denial right now, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I am used to it. Um, and you know, you were saying you thought that contributed to your, um, anxiety and agoraphobia, um, yeah. after that death. But I also wondered how, being in the space you are in, uh, being um, not able to put it aside and very clear what had happened and really immersed in it, and then people acting as if um, you shouldn't be feeling much of anything and and maybe not giving you support or listening, you know, not quite being able to be with you, maybe that is a factor too. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, um, it's strangely, it was um, it was two opposite reactions. Um, half the time, it was. I mean, did you know him? Is this is this really ups? I'm quite surprised you're, you're as upset as you're saying you are. You know that thing of you don't really have a have a have a claim on this loss. Um, and on the other side, with the people I was close enough with to say that I'm having real trouble, um, they were. Oh, you know that's normal. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's understandable. And, you know, I was, this was when I was telling people that I was stalking my friends on social media to check that they'd updated recently. And if they hadn't updated in four hours, I would start thinking they were dead. Um, and not, not abstractly, I mean, actually, genuinely, you know, trying to get them to answer me, um, which is a full-time job, let me tell you. Um, uh, especially because you seem pretty social. I bet you have a number of friends and relations you might be looking after that way, huh? Yeah, and sometimes it would be people I hadn't even, like, thought about in a long time, you know. And, you know, there may be, um, uh, you know, previous experiences. You know, I, there was a, a person I was friends with at university who didn't wake up one day, and that was it. And they buried her with inconclusive. So I guess it brought that up, you know, that that thing of, oh, my gosh, anyone can die any second and no one will even tell me why. So, OK, well, the logical thing is I, I better check everyone's alive. I mean, how else am I supposed to know? It was rather tinged with arrogance, like, you know, God, why am I the only person that's worked this out? God, everyone's so stupid. Um, so <laughs> it was just... But, well, you know, but in a way, in a way, you were you were kind of waking up to a reality that everyone puts aside. 
Yes, yes. And and it it dominated everything because it was so present. It's it is true yeah. that life can be over in an instant. It's true that someone could be dead and mm-hmm. you not know it. And you were unava- uh, 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 unable to avoid that, I guess? Completely. I mean, you know, humans have the, the terrible misfortune to be aware of our impending demise at all times. You know, like a deer or something um, only has that kind of panic when, when it's under a threat. And then it goes back to sipping from a pond or whatever. You know, we can be sitting having a cup of tea and then suddenly go, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And it's and, you know, you just you have to be able to put that aside for a second. Um, and that was what I lost. I lost the ability to put that aside. It suddenly seemed utterly um, um, you know, a lot more important than anything else I had to do, um, which, is, which is not rational. I want to say this right now that I disagree with my former self. That was not logical behavior. But people don't like to, um, you know, deal with this stuff. You know, the same reason we tell, you know, people with depression, oh, you're just, you're, you're just a teenager. Oh, you're just having a rough time, you know, in order to avoid it. The, the exact same thing happened there. Nobody wanted to sort of sit me down and say, um, you, you, you need to find a healthier way of dealing with this. Everyone just said, oh, it's, it's completely normal. No, it's not. <laughs> Uh, well, and the other thing is, there's a way in which it is normal in the sense that you're trying to come to terms with something, mm-hmm. but just saying it's normal doesn't help you come to terms with it. They weren't saying, wow, you've really been confronted with death. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that or, you know. <laughs> yeah. They were normal to- changing the conversation, definitely, because they didn't know. I mean, I, you know, the... The stereotype of British people just wanting to make a cup of tea and have a smile, um, it's not as far from reality as perhaps we'd like to believe. Uh, so you, you, know. you being an exception, however. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people in England, and they're all exceptions. <laughs> so yeah. experience as a teacher. Why don't you share the part of your book about this anxiety? I think that's really timely Give given what we're talking about. Sure. Okay. Like anyone else with anxiety, I have, and I believe this is the medical term, an inner shithead who tells me why everything is terrifying. Shortly after we found Chris um, dead, my inner shithead pointed out, for example, that anyone I'm not looking at might also be dead. When I started my new job working from home, my inner shithead moved on to a bigger project. She started pointing out with increasing regularity how much nicer indoors was than outdoors. I even started making her arguments for her. Why is everyone so big on going outside every day? I mean, who is outside the PR team, seriously? Because everyone's on about it. Are there outside lobbyists? I have a window. You can get vitamin D from leaks, and I have four. You actually can't get vitamin D from leaks, as it turns out. And the reason the fridge was so well stocked is because my husband knew if there was no food in the house, I'd rather stay inside than eat. Eventually, my inner shit had revealed that there was nothing wrong with outside per se. It was all just a dirty, rotten trick to make me agoraphobic. Classic inner shithead. I walked right into that one. So I googled, hoping to see an article about curing agoraphobia with a glass of orange juice and an hour of Netflix. But it turns out the cure is basically just to go outside. So I got dressed and went out to buy a sandwich. Um, I will describe this to you um, because I'm pretty sure it's it's not an it's not an experience a lot of people share. 
I don't know if you've ever had to push your way through a crowd of screaming, belligerent, drunk people, but that's what the air felt like. It touched my face in a really oppressive way and seemed to thicken in my lungs. I cringed away in terror when anyone passed me in the street. And if the air outside was oppressive, the air in the supermarket was screaming in my face. I looked at the sandwiches in their triangular packets and thought, that's a nightmare. The corners, what if I drop it? I'll never reach it all the way on the floor. So I grabbed a baguette just for the ease of grip. Then someone approached me. In real life, she was just a nice lady trying to offer me a discount on cookies, but I treated her as if she was a toothless demon with open sores growling, give me a kiss. I stuttered, no, I threw the sandwich down and I ran home. And when I got home, where the air was gentle and thin enough to breathe without effort, I thought, this is not a normal part of the grieving process. I'm pretty sure it's not denial, anger, fear, sandwich throwing, depression, acceptance. I cast my mind back to the few years when I lived in Mexico, where they have an annual festival for the dead. I started researching other countries where they have death festivals, or death devils, as I now call them. I found out that there are parts of the process of finding someone dead that I would never have assumed were cultural that are, such as priority number one. Priority number one, when you find someone dead, seems to be get rid of the body. And then I read that in Ifugao, in Indonesia, when somebody dies, the body isn't removed straight away. Instead, it's propped on a chair at the front of their house and left for up to eight days before internment. Death rituals are performed and people drink, crack jokes and party as the body decomposes in the stifling heat and humidity. Now, I'm not saying we should import this ritual, but it's interesting to note that the horror of a decomposing body isn't necessarily instinctive. And I realize I'm a strange person to be writing a book about death. I'm not old or terminally ill, and as the daughter-in-law of the person who kicked this off by dropping dead so unexpectedly, I'm an outsider, and I have been told I have no right to even feel this loss. Writing this book as a grief outsider, I do of course hope to heal what time can't, and try to understand why facing death makes some throw a party and others throw a sandwich. So the way in which you make meaning, you know, every week I feel as if I end up talking about meaning, is to investigate, isn't it? You're, you now, because of your own experience, have this real desire to understand how different people mm-hmm. uh, confront death. Yeah, I suppose it's um, the classic... Uh, response to a phobia you know if you're afraid of spiders you go and hold a spider if you're afraid of death you go to a bunch of death festivals <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess and also write a book and investigate what what you believe about it and you know there's a lot you're doing here for sure yeah. you know I think you know every time I have um I have an urge to 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 know something or talk about something I think, well, I can't be the only one. I'm not unique enough to be the only person that feels a particular way. So, um, you know, if I write about it, um, maybe someone else who's stuck in this situation would will, will get something out of it. You know, it's I guess that's the journalist in me, you know, the, the desire to sort of say, hey, guys, I found out this thing, you know, come and experience it with me. So, um, yes. yeah, it's very important to, you know, there's talk um, of a documentary as well. Um, that's just starting. So, you know, hopefully there'll be there'll be several means by which people can find out about um, these things. Because at the moment, everyone only thinks of Mexico. You know, um, 
an editor even told me, I'm getting, I'm getting bored of Day of the Dead now because everyone knows about it. And no one seems to know about all of the other death festivals which go on. It's not just a quirky thing in Mexico. It's something done, you know, to the point where I'm starting to think we might be the odd ones out, you know. I, I think maybe so. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I'm thinking of several in my head at this moment, or at least a few. And and also um, some way that we've, well, here's where I'm coming from. I, I, I've worked with a man from Burkina Faso, uh, Maladoma Somme, a long time ago when my wife died, and then also some of his students. And uh, he came here from there, kind of sent to the West to check things out and by his elders. And it was clear to him that we grieved very differently. Mm. And um, he went back home and he described the way we grieve. And his elders said, why would such an intelligent people give away their grief that way? Mm. Wow. They could not. They could not understand. Their their tradition is very vocal. It's very active. It happens within community. Uh, yeah. No one is alone. Everyone is held. Mm. Just the opposite, really, <laughs> of you know, kind of our death traditions. And I that has stuck with me all these years. That idea that we've given something away mm. uh, in the course of. Even if you take a, um, you know, a wake in Ireland, that's not that long ago. Mm. But I'm not sure that even happens anymore. Neither am I. And, you know, it's, I'm not, we've given it away and I'm not sure what we've got in return. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been looking at is um, in England, um, Victorian morning rituals. And um, just like everything else in Victorian society, it was incredibly rigid. Um, But it was things like uh, there was a certain dress code that you, you know, widows would be expected to wear black for two years and it would change depending on the family member. I think an orphan would be for several months, um, you know, more distant relatives, just a week. Um, and it's, we've, we've lost that. And the reason I think that's a loss is because it's, it's a very simple signal to the world. I'm in pain. Please be gentle with me. Yes. I don't have that anymore. You know, I, I went back to work two days later and I was a mess and I was completely silent about it. And then someone said, how was your weekend? And I said, he's dead. We found him dead. He was dead. He was dead. And, you know, I just babbled. And they, they couldn't even you couldn't even help it, I imagine. Oh, it was it was impossible. When they said, how was your weekend? A tiny part of a, a tiny part of me thought, uh, uh, what did I used to answer? What what did I used to say? before this was what I was doing, before I was, you know, reading terrifying letters from the government about tax we now had to pay and houses we had to sell and when we had to open a present that his wife left for him that he didn't open for five years. We had to open it just to see who we could give it to. You know, what did I used to say before? And um, anyway, I didn't I didn't I didn't stay silent for long. I just <laughs> blurted out the truth. And they sort of just said, "Had probably taxi. saved you, Erica." <laughs> it probably did because they sent me home in a taxi. They said, oh, "You're not ready to be here." <laughs> Absolutely, they said, "Right, two weeks compassionate leave for you." And it was basically, you know, it was very kind. But on the other hand, it was very much, um, "We can't deal with this. Go and." Go and become a functioning human again, you know. And, um, and we won't be visiting either. 
No. We might, we might leave a meal on the doorstep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we no. won't be coming in, huh? <laughs> that doesn't happen here. I mean, that's a lovely tradition that I've seen in movies, but that does. I mean, to be honest, and you know, I don't. I don't mean this in any harsh way to, to my to my colleagues who, because this was my last month at that workplace before I became a uh, work at home. Because nothing is better for a fledgling agrophobe than a work at home job. <laughs> <laughs> you probably thought, how great is this at the start, right? <laughs> so pleased. I was like, this is fantastic because I really hate leaving the house. You know, I was already not enjoying leaving. It already took a lot of mustering, you know. Um, but for the last month, um, no one spoke to me. Um, they just left me alone. And I'm sure it was because they all have this awkward sense of what are we supposed to do? That what This sense of propriety. Let's leave her alone. She's been through a lot because I think... You know, I think word got around for my husband. It was worse. He got back after two weeks and um, of, you know, compassionate leave. And people were saying, where have you been for two weeks? And he mm. thought, why wouldn't you tell them? Why Why right. wouldn't you prepare everybody? Of course. It's, and they sort of, it's not my place to say. And it's like, but now what you've lumbered me with is is now I have to tell the story 20 times. And I don't, and that's not good for me right now. So, Absolutely. That's yeah. that's such an important thing you're talking about. I I had a guest who actually goes into workplaces to train them about what they ought to do because she lost her husband suddenly. So that's very familiar. Let's yeah. come back to that when we when we get back from our break and Listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. That's got links to everything as well as my Good Grief host page. <clears throat> and to find Erica Buist, you can go to thisisnotajourney.com. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm talking with Erica Buist today. She's writing a book called This Is Not a Journey. Um, about different ways uh, that death rituals happen in other parts of the world, death festivals even. And uh, she came to 
uh, be interested in this after the death of her father-in-law. And during the break, I was saying, Erica, that, you know, there's this, this terrible combination where on the one hand, death is the worst fear and nobody wants to talk about it. And, and we're just trying to stay away from the fact that it happens. But then when someone actually dies, you're supposed to be better very very fast and kind of just move on and Mm. uh, not be affected that much uh, which of course is typically impossible yes I mean I think it's all part of um, people's own unwillingness to talk about it like the fact that we don't even you know even doctors say they are completely ill-equipped to talk about death a lot of the time um, because it's just it's not what anyone wants to think about and when someone comes to you and says I'm 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 shattered with grief. They have nothing. They have no, not even any platitudes to reach for it, except the sort of, you know, just sickeningly hackneyed ones of he's in a better place and all of that stuff that does nothing for you as the person who's who's bereaved. So I think people, um, they're, they're silently begging you to get over it so that they don't have to deal with it and deal with thinking about you know their own parents who could die or, or spouses or whatever I think it's I think it's um it's something people really need training almost in, in how to talk about because it's not a problem with a solution and I think our maybe this is how you know uh, death ritual got lost because we are very in this culture very problem focused Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's the problem and how do we fix it? And death and grief are not problems you can fix. They're, they're experiences you have, but they're not, you can't, uh, you can't resolve it on, on a dime by some magical <laughs> intervention. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, maybe that's part of the connection there. Yeah, I mean, there's ways that people try and avoid it. Um, you know, um, every pretty much every religion, you know, one of the main perks is you don't have to die. You'll be, you'll go to heaven, you'll be reincarnated, you'll, you know, um, whatever. Um, that's one. And while people can go through their, their day-to-day lives believing that, when someone comes to them and goes, he's dead and he's gone and I'm ruined now, it just, just you draw a blank. You've got nothing. You've only used, you've only used this stuff to deal with your own demise, you know. And, um, you know, it's the same thing with um, when you, when people are sort of, there's big, big debates in Britain about um, about inheritance, and people get very angry with people who inherit money, which I totally get because they they've forgotten the part where you found a dead body or where you've lost somebody. Because no one wants to think about that. Who wants to think about that? You know, so they erase that part. Um, you know, it's I see death denial everywhere now. Now <laughs> that I'm writing this book, it's all <laughs> I see. Yeah. You know, I'd like to give people just a little sense of these travels you're having. So maybe you can share the the chapter about Mexico. I know you said um, everyone always thinks of uh, Dia de los Muertos, and that's true. Mm. But part of that is it's it's a very um, stark contrast with what happens here, and it's near enough that we hear about it. Very much near enough. Near enough to us here that we hear about it. Um, of course, I live in a place where a lot of people are from Mexico, mm. so that may may influence you know how much the how much it's on in my um, understanding and thinking. Yes. But I also think it's just a 
a thing that appeals as a contrast to what we do. So would you share yeah, that part? Stunning. Absolutely, yes. This is just a very small extract from uh, from my chapter on Mexico. And um, this is the point. I've I've spent the morning helping build an altar for Day of the Dead. And now I've, um, I'm just attending. I'm going into um, to sort of hear it spoken about. So here we go. Um, as night falls, hotel guests gather in the breakfast room for a talk from Jamie, a tour guide on the history of Day of the Dead. The room hushes. As Jamie speaks, he cycles through a slideshow of images of the cemeteries in the area, dressed up for the occasion. Every single grave is entirely hidden under a carpet of marigolds, lit up by candles and watched over by families sitting up all night in the graveyard, wrapped in blankets. Do you really think the spirits of the dead come back, literally? asks one of the women, not unkindly. I think they do, says Jamie. In Michoacan, we see an arrival of butterflies just before Day of the Dead. They announce that the celebration is about to come, and many people believe that they're the souls returning to us. It's solemn in the graveyard, but this is not a solemn occasion, he continues. Outside the cemetery, it is a fiesta. This is the night our families come to visit us after death. So we're not sad or afraid. We're not mourning death. We're celebrating life. Everything has to be perfect because family members are visiting. Family members, I echo in my head. My stomach goes cold. Not old roommates. Not the father of the guy you're marrying. Was Chris a family member to me? I wasn't even an in-law when he died. He wasn't my dad. I didn't find him in that bed. What the hell right do I even have to be here putting down ofrendas for someone else's family members? As I sit and quietly panic, one of the retired American ladies raises her hand and asks, Are young people keeping up the traditions? Sadly not, says Jamie. For many young people, Day of the Dead has become more about partying than remembering the dead. Oh, tell me about it, barks one of the older ladies in the front. She's as American as cheese in a can, but she's wearing a traditional indigenous dress and is draped in a beautiful shawl. I went to Janitio Island for Day of the Dead 40 years ago, and it was one of the most beautiful spiritual experiences of my life. But now, drunk people everywhere, and that loud music and all those neon lights. When I see drunken young people falling on the graves, I tell you, I just cringe. It is so disrespectful. I want to ask a question, but I'm nervous to speak. I use the time Jamie spends trying to get him word in edgewise to get up the courage. Last year, I went to a cemetery, and they had a drone, she says. In a cemetery. She leans forward and groans again, a drone, sounding not unlike a drone. Jamie looks at me. My hand must already be up. Yes, he says, smiling. My heart lurches. How can it be my turn to speak already? The drone lady must have needed to breathe. Um, I say, and everyone falls silent and looks at me, the way they do in nightmares right before you realize you're naked. I uh, lost someone last year, my father-in-law, and we... Um, we lived with him for two years, but I don't know if it's normal to my throat strains with the effort of not allowing my voice to crack. It's been really hard. I guess my question is, is it normal to put down an ofrenda for someone who wasn't your immediate family? Everyone is looking at me with a mixture of kindness and pity. I fix my eyes on Jamie and try to forget they're all there. I think it is normal, says Jamie gently. When we put down ofrendas, we're inviting the dead to visit. You can invite anyone you're thinking of. They will come. And just to remember them is to ask them to come. People only really die when we forget them. And that's why in the cemetery, we have an altar for all the people who've been forgotten. I nod and smile in a way I hope says, Thank you, sir. You have answered my question very thoughtfully, and I do not now want to cry. 
I pretend to scratch my cheek when I feel a tear roll down it. The talk finishes and the guests disperse. I put my head down as I pack away my notebook. The other guests file past me to their rooms. I hum cheerfully to myself in case anyone thinks I might need comforting because the inside of my chest feels like a wobbling water balloon and if someone is kind to me right now, I really might burst into tears. A drone, the drone woman mutters, throwing me a look as she shuffles out of the room. Can you believe that? That's just my little extract there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the 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 part where uh, I mean she's obviously stands out, and that is that's sort of um, those of us who are trying to come with a little more. I don't know, consciousness of others. <laughs> get very embarrassed by that image of America, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but she was an actual person. I went to China yeah. with many people like that. <laughs> I went with my mother, so we went on a tour, and there was yeah. a lot of, oh, dear. <laughs> but yeah, it's that aside. <laughs> I ended up loving the drone woman because the thing is, I, you, it, to be honest, it's, it's not just Americans. You know, there's always somewhere, someone who's super excited that they know something. Um, but what was amazing about the drone woman is she seemed so awful to me at first, but she wasn't wrong. <laughs> it was, it was when, when I got there and, you know, these cemeteries, they're beautiful, but it's impossible to have the sort of spiritual experience I was hoping to have because, um, it was like Disneyland, you know, and it was, you know, there's families sitting by the graves and then, you know, they're, they're falling asleep because it's four in the morning and they get woken up by a tourist clicking a camera in their face. And there was a point in the last cemetery when I was just looking around thinking, this is not, this has brought me no closer to Chris or my grief or anything. And then I heard this strange sound. My, the first thing that, that popped into my head when I heard it was it sounded like E.T. was was angry. He was like, eh, and I just looked up and it was a drone. <laughs> I thought, oh, she's right. <laughs> so you, then you ended up having the very same experience. <laughs> Completely. And it was, I don't know, it was so, you know, I was so, um, I was really disappointed with, with how it went. And yet, um, I mean, this is covered in the rest of the chapter, how... Um, it didn't matter in the end, you know, in the end, um, just partaking in the ritual, even if you can't believe that they're really there, um, just partaking in the ritual was was weirdly helpful. Um, I, you know, until that point, I hadn't used a calendar since Chris died because a week after he died, um, my calendar beeped at me, birthday dinner with Chris. And I thought, well, I'm not using this anymore if it's just going to barge into my day and hurt my feelings so mm. I stopped using it and um, after that night when I, I, I had a very awkward conversation with a photo of Chris um, and then I started using my calendar again so just the just the ritual itself um, I think it, it seemed to be healing you know? I, th I think that's really important what you're saying that it, it, it if you haven't actually gone towards the thing that hurts mm. and seeing that it helps it's yeah. very hard to understand that it does help yeah. it's counterintuitive that it helps but it does of course that's part of the object of this show mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> itself and of course you're doing it quite dramatically by going so many places 
and experiencing so many different rituals. I I had a woman on the show, Marie Mockett, who's half Japanese, and after her father died, she went to Japan and kind of uncovered death rituals there. It's called Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye. Mm. But several of the, the rituals were kind of the the point, the meaning had been somewhat lost to the people. Yeah. They were just, oh, this is the day where we go to the lake, you know. And right, she and she reinvigorated the meaning for herself. It was quite a beautiful book. You might be interested in it, actually. I said, I've written so, it down. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a way that we're talking here about saying it's okay. Go ahead and and do the rituals that call to you, aren't we? Yeah. You know, invent, invent your own. You know, it's, I mean, one of the reasons that I've, I'm doing eight um, is because that's how many days it took to find him. You know, I think one death festival for every day we didn't find him, that has a sort of um, a cyclical quality that I'm hoping will feel, you know, somehow, I don't know, some kind of closure. I don't know. Maybe I'll give you a call when I've done the, <laughs> I've done them and let you know. Well, actually, I think you should come back on when you finish. How many have you have you done so far? Uh, so far, just the one because, um, as I said, because there's talks about a documentary. There's, uh, um, I'm, well, partly I'm sort of waiting to see how that pans out. But also, death season is April till till November. So um, unless I can uh, skip over to Italy in November, then it's I'm going to have to wait till April. In the winter months, there don't seem to be any death festivals, so <laughs> I'll have to wait until the sun comes out. And so we have light festivals in the winter to remind us there's spring and summer, and we have death festivals in the spring and summer mm-hmm. to remind us that that exists as well, huh? Yeah, yeah it's all very <laughs> Yeah, beautiful, isn't it? Remember everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so happens to coincide with all my major losses. They've all they've all happened within that frame of time. So really, wow. <laughs> yeah, different months, but you know, same frame of time. Yeah. Well, Erica, it's been wonderful having you today. I hope you will come back when you finish the book when the book comes out, which I'm sure it will, and we can talk about. Uh, how the how the adventure unfolds of course I would love to great we'll be in touch and <laughs> listeners you can find Erica Buist at thisisnotajourney.com for more writings about this and the other work she does as well this has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.